I don't need what's what's an influencer. All right, this is a good occasion to do the show. <laughs> Start the show. <laughs> Welcome back. It's episode 153 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast coming to you, as we always do, in the faculty lounge of the Epstein and U School of Law, one of the country's leading law schools for disbarment rates. I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter, co-founder of Kite and Key Media and cover model for the most recent Ann Taylor catalog. And I am joined, as always, by the Sinatra and Martin of the conservative legal movement, they are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. And which one am I? <laughs> which one what? Sinatra Martin. Oh, you're Frank. You're Frank, because we, we all know that in terms of the guy who's going to be on stage with a, a glass of brown liquor. That's it's going to be John. John. Yeah. Okay. Oh, got which it. Leads no, me no, to- he's, he's, he's Jerry Lewis. This is unfair. John, at least let me get through your introduction. John, you're a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. So, boys, good to be back. We have had a huge and unpardonable gap since the last show because it turns out it is harder to bust yourself out of an Uzbek prison than you'd think. But one (laughs) unusual occurrence uh, has taken place since last we got together, which is, as you know, uh, I rarely leave the house, but John and I saw each other in person for a couple of days in the wilds of the Pacific Northwest, where John is too modest to say this, but Richard, I will tell you, he is a rock star amongst conser- amongst conservative groups meeting in out-of-season Washington resort towns. John is Elvis. He is. This was the most awesome resort town where nothing happens other than in June and July. And so there was so much kitsch there, Richard, you would have been at home. There was like a restaurant where the door of the restaurant was a gigantic shark jaw. And you would walk through the jaws to go into the restaurant, just like restaurant after restaurant was like this. It was great. Okay, and, why, and why is it nobody invites me to these things? I guess, John, you're a rock star. And Your I'm fees are old- too high, Richard. My fees. Your fees are yeah, too high. My legal fees lately have averaged around zero point zero dollars. So well, what you're telling me is I have to pay other people to listen to me. Let me ask you this question, Richard, because you've been working the circuit for a long time. You get yes. a lot of speeches. You especially used to do a lot of travel, including a fair bit of international. Weird, yeah. Weirdest place you've ever gone to give a speech? The weirdest place? Yeah. God, I you know, I, I don't even be to have an idea i could tell you the weirdest rooms i've been in Go for uh, it. i mean what happens is you're giving a speech and there's a rock party next door and you get on the microphone and you're constantly having to deal with tuba sounds behind you and you pray that the other event will Wait, end tuba so sounds can... the, re- well, the rock party had tuba well, sounds well whatever it was i don't know <laughs> i mean but it, it, those things are the most disturbing uh, i can tell you the strangest venue i ever had in one sense in terms of longness and thinness it was um, at cornell law school and leonard leo was the federal society president there 
they're destined for greater things, as indeed happened. And that room must have been six feet wide, and it must have been 100 feet long or whatever it is. Um, and that's very disconcerting. You don't like to speak to long alley, bowling alley type situation. Um, but otherwise, I mean, I think I've generally been treated fairly well. Um, I've gone to that's some nice towns on this stuff. I mean, I, I do, you know, since COVID and so forth, I've done less traveling lately. Uh, but, you know, there was a time when I used to give about 100 speeches a year in one form or another. Can I tell the story of Richard just visiting Berkeley recently? Oh, you can. Yes. One of the stops Richard made was to speak at Berkeley, and he was going to give a spellbinding talk about the dubious morality of the administrative state. Even with that title, the room was full. So anyway, this was at a time when we were required to, we had to wear masks in class. This was just, yeah, N95 masks. And this is in February still. Both the speaker and the audience were required to wear N95 masks. Wait, the speaker too? So Richard, yeah, the speaker too. It's so stupid. So Richard gets up and the first thing he says is, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And rips the mask off and says, now I'm going to talk, and then spent the whole talk attacking COVID lockdowns and masking requirements. During said talk, I don't think I told Richard this, during the talk, I'm getting emails from the Snowflake students in the classroom are saying, I feel physically threatened by Richard Epstein. Richard Epstein is threatening my safety and I mean, that's the right instinct, but it has nothing room. to do with the mask. <laughs> By this time, I, by the way, I had natural immunity. Um, <laughs> and so it turns out all the powers that be don't recognize it. But uh, but yes, and then I got a note from the dean, my good friend, Erwin Chemerinsky. I said to the I said to Erwin, to the dean about the students, what I wanted to write was it would be some of the great some of these students' greatest achievements in life would be to catch COVID from Richard Epstein. <laughs> but I actually said, well, Erwin, if you or any of the students wants to try to stop Richard from speaking once he gets going and force a mask on him, good luck to you, but I'm not going to do it. Yeah, you can't stop him. You can only hope to well, No, but let me tell you what I told him. I mean, he was very nice about it. He told me that I had been in blatant violation of the local rules. That was his word. <laughs> and I, what happened is I came there with my useless mask, the little blue ones. And only when I arrived was I told about the N95 mask. So even though there was public notice, there was not private notice. And I said to him, look, if I had known that I had to use an N95 mask, I would not have spoken. I mean, look, this is not a joke in some sense. They always assume that the people who wear the mask have perfect bodies in some way, shape, or form. I have, which doesn't bother me under normal circumstances, low-level respiratory stuff. And it turns out when you have that and you put on an N95 mask, it's actually rather dangerous and you feel very uneasy about yourself. Sure. And one of the things that's so wrong about all these COVID stuff is they assume that everybody's in guilt-edged condition so that the mask is going on a perfect specimen. And it's in many, many cases, it's not. Even, for example, my wife, she has, she wears hearing aids and so forth. You start putting the mask on, the next thing you know, your hearing aids are forced out um, by the way. Well, which at least that's goes. what she tells. At least that's what she says to you when she's not listening to you. Well, she says, <laughs> but she's never listening to me. So she says it all the time. No, but everybody kind of has these experiences. Wearing a mask and wearing glasses is very difficult. And one of the things that happened right. when I try to put this mask on, not only could I not breathe, but they keep on, they're so tight, they popped off of my ears and they started to take my glasses uh, uh, with them. And I said to myself, this has become a circus. 
Richard, Which, it's so much better if you were to just say it wasn't about glass. You were just striking a blow for, for freedom. freedom. <laughs> yes, for freedom. Uh, well, I mean, I, I would say that um, in my writing. Uh, I, w- I would say this. I mean, what's so clear about it is it, it now it turns out you have to have a certain amount of heroism uh, to attack the standard view on this. I think more and more people are doing it. Uh, the bottom line with respect to COVID and masks and the vaccines and everything else in the quarantines is that they are the chief agents in prolonging this thing far longer than it ought to have been uh, by preventing the natural spread of immunities by low-level transmission from asymptomatic to asymptomatic person. To say that publicly gets you into real sorts of troubles in many places, including official circumstances. But as I always remind people, the worst thing we've ever had, by far worse than COVID, the Spanish flu, it took nine weeks to run its course. All right, we'll have a chance to, to get back actually to some of the COVID stuff because you can imagine there's a couple of things we need to talk about there. But always, I, I, yeah. I want to start you guys uh, with the Supreme Court just because we haven't had a chance to talk about it since it's been so long since we've done a show. So this this still there? Katanji Brown Jackson now confirmed she will replace Stephen Breyer at the end of this session. Uh, here's a really basic question for you guys, and John, I'll start with you. Should anybody care? The net difference between a Justice Breyer and a Justice Jackson is what? No one should care in terms of the votes, how things will turn out in this year or maybe the next few years. But there is a big difference in terms of their, uh, how would you say, their jurisprudence, the way they think about the law. And that's what will have a much longer effect. The thing that disturbed me about her was it wasn't actually in the uh, live hearings. It was in her written questions when Ted Cruz asked her, for example, do you think that human beings have natural rights? And she said, I don't take a position, which I found astounding because the next question was, do you agree that the Declaration of Independence acknowledges the natural rights of man? And she said, yes, the Declaration of Independence does, which means that she takes no position on the Declaration of Independence, too. So the thing that really bothered me was that you can have a debate between Scalia and Bork on the one hand and Thomas and Gorsuch on the other, or me and Richard, about whether judges should try to take natural rights like those in the Declaration of Independence and incorporate them into the cases. But or whether it's up to legislatures and presidents and governors and so on. But to say that uh, Americans have no natural rights at all uh, to deny the Declaration of Independence, I thought that was astounding. And I think that is what makes a big difference is do judges believe uh, that rights are natural and inherent and make all of us equal? Or are they just something that the government creates and gives to us, which is the progressive view? And I assume that's the soon to be Justice Jackson's view. And along with many other members of the United States Supreme Court. And of course, by the way, they don't really believe it because you then start to figure out what happens when the road, you hit the rubber of the road. And so somebody says, you know, it turns out that the only reason why rape is illegal is the state defines it as such. So let's reverse the definitions and say it's perfectly legitimate unless a woman buys a way out of this situation. You could imagine the howls and the yells, all rightly conceived, of making such a grotesque suggestion. And then you say, well, why is it that the woman, in effect, has the right to resist this? And you're not allowed to talk about bodily autonomy from attacks by other people as a natural right. Um, You don't know where 
to begin. So we all are natural lawyers. I think what has happened is many people don't want to be natural lawyers because the natural lawyers maybe get you the right answers as far as they're concerned on the rape cases, but it will not work at all when you start dealing with standard economic liberties. If you have a right to contract, well, if that's a natural right, then the minimum wage laws are going to be in serious trouble, the union laws, anti-discrimination laws, and so forth. So that what happens is you move from personal autonomy uh, to sort of economic relationships, the natural law theory, which to many people is attractive in the first domain, is highly unattractive in the second. The justice who understood this and tried to work his way around it was Justice um, Brennan when he had with the Roberts J.C. case as to whether or not it turns out that uh, a large organization like that was under a duty to admit women through the front door, which they were going to do anyhow within a year or so. And his answer is, well, they can force that. And then somebody asked him, well, do you have a natural right to marry the person whom you want? Or does an anti-discrimination law say that if the only reason you turn down somebody is that she is of the wrong religion or the wrong sex, for that matter, it turns out it's an illegal form of discrimination. He was very clear in his own mind that these intimate two-party personal relationships are guarded by the other system. What he was never able to do is to figure out where the transaction points went and why the change, the classical liberal, does have an answer to that. It would say, does the JCC or the JCs have anything that remotely looks like a monopoly in entertainment spaces? The answer is no, there's no duty to serve. If the answer is yes, then the standard rules for common carriers would start to apply. I still think that that's the right line, uh, but for a progressive who's committed to having a much more extensive anti-discrimination law, they cannot believe in natural rights all the way down. So then they say they don't believe in it at all. They don't do that. Their positions, I think, is best expressed by the one that Justice Brennan took. And I think it has a certain intuitive senses about it. So it certainly doesn't get things backwards. But I think in the end, those lines don't work. John, uh, let me ask you this. Mitch McConnell said recently that if there was a Supreme Court vacancy in 2024, that a Republican-controlled Senate would not advance any Biden nominee. Lindsey Graham, during KBJ's confirmation process, said that if Republicans controlled the Senate now, she wouldn't have gotten a hearing, that Biden would have had to appoint someone more moderate. So everyone likes to hearken back in these conversations to Ginsburg getting confirmed 96 to 3. But much more recently than that, I mean, Justice Sotomayor got 68 votes for her confirmation. So has the process gotten too political? And to maybe put a finer point on it, what is the standard to which an opposition party should hold itself for a Supreme Court nomination? It's a good question, Troy. I, I wouldn't go as far as saying that Supreme Court nominees are only going to be confirmed if the president and senator are controlled by the same party, which is, I think, what the McConnell-Graham rule will reduce to. You could say we're headed that way, given how close the votes are for the last few justices, how their party line. I have to say, people are complaining about this with Justice Jackson should go back and look at the vote totals for the three Trump justices. I mean, okay, so maybe Justice Kavanaugh, you have those disputes about whether he sexually harassed someone when he was a high school kid. But Justices Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett, what is the substantive ground to oppose them? And yet almost every Democrat voted against both of them. And this started long ago. Actually, I don't think Ginsburg is really where um, things went south. I think it was with Judge Bork. First I think time Judge around. Bork, 
yeah, probably the f- most qualified nominee, one of the most qualified nominees probably ever in American history, certainly in recent times, although that's because me and Richard weren't put up. But, right, he was a really uh, a fabulous nominee. He was attacked quite unfairly. I think what's happened since is that um, Democrats have always escalated and Republicans have been slow to catch up. And so, yes, a lot of Republicans voted for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. A lot of Republicans voted for Stephen Breyer, too. But it was only as Democrats kept escalating the confirmation wars that Republicans have now essentially caught up. I have to say, Troy, I think the only way it stops and we go back to a standard that looks more at only qualifications and jurisprudence and not personal background, not partisan political affiliations, not just policy views, is if Republicans and Democrats both escalate and say to something like the McConnell rule, we will stop the confirmation process just across the board unless we reach a deal to go back to the way it was before Bork. Well, I think what's really happening is we have no intergenerational trust anymore. Uh, So that what happens is you can't say, we'll back off on yours because we respect that you will back off on ours further down the road. And in fact, one of the people who was most decisive on this, and John was one of its victims, uh, was was Biden, because what he did is he fired all the members of all the various advisory committees, even though they were appointed for term appointments under a system in which every every president gets to appoint two, say, for many offices over a three-year cycle, and Biden just wants to get rid of them all. Um, I think it's illegal because these are not offices under the federal constitution. Indeed, I'm representing plaintiffs who are trying to make that case in court. Uh, But even if it turns out that Biden wins, he now wants to appoint somebody to a three-year term. What Republican is going to say, I'm going to live under a regime where you get to appoint your guys for term limits and I get my guys appointed and they get axed by the president of the United States. So when you have a stable convention that worked as you did, and now what you do is you have somebody like Biden coming along and blowing it up. You were fired, right, John, John summarily from some obscure panel. Correct? It was such an honor to be fired by the president. Well, I understand <laughs> by that. President, <laughs> by President Biden. But remember, the case was because he wouldn't, Trump signed my commission. It was just like Marbury, remember? And Biden wouldn't turn it over. He held the commission back, even though it had been signed by the president. And so then I had to sue him to get it. And then he's fired me right after I got it. So yeah, I mean, it worked look, out best for everybody. <laughs> no, it worked out. It, it, it is, in fact, the worst possible kind of behavior. And, and if you really want to talk about the rule of law, the ability to do that, the person after person and commission after commission. And these letters just basically said, either you quit by five o'clock or I fire you by six o'clock. And the good thing about the letters, they said, thank you. Every one of these letters said, thank you. Uh, but I think, in effect, that's the problem, and we have it. And remember, this thing probably began with Miguel Estrada in terms of the stuff in which it was clear that the Democrats didn't want him to go forward for a seat on the District of Columbia Circuit Court because they thought he was too qualified a Hispanic who might then fill the quote-unquote Hispanic seat on the Supreme Court. So they were determined to keep him off, and they did keep him off. He basically tried to play this game for about a year or more even. But what happens is you've got a bunch of clients whom you can't 
command service if you're always in this odd position of not knowing whether you're fish or fowl. So he withdrew from the situation. And this is one of these things we never know quite where it began. With respect to Bork, let me make one comment. I knew Bob both before and afterwards. I think he was shattered psychologically by the experience, um, as I think any sane person would be. The reason they were able to get at him early on, which could have been a distinctive reason if they wanted to treat it as such, was because he was guilty of all sorts of crazy inflammatory statements that did not reflect his intellectual abilities, of which the most famous one had to do with the 1963 article he wrote in the New Republic describing the public accommodation statute. Uh, Section 2 of the Civil Rights Act is a statute of unsurpassed ugliness. I mean, you don't have to do that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, What you can say is, well, does a railroad have a right to exclude passengers based on race? And interestingly enough, it's a common carrier, and the answer is no. Uh, So what he does is he got himself into things like that. I could still remember when Bork spoke at an alumni dinner at the University of Chicago, and my wife was sitting there next to me, and he starts getting upset about some left-wing radicals, and he starts to announce how he wants to see the severed head of a student activist served on a silver platter. And, And she looked at me, what's going on here? He had that tendency, and it cost him dearly. He was also uncommonly stubborn in terms of what people gave him advice to do. Bob, said Gerhard Casper, I believe, shave the beard. And then other people <laughs> said to him, I mean, you know, good advice, right? And somebody said, right. well, why are you going on the Supreme Court answer to serve humanity? The answer he gave is, what an intellectual feast. Um, he did a bunch of things. So you could kind of figure out, oh, we'll let him go. But after this goes on time after time, it's quite clear that Bork may have been the most inviting target because of these odd picadillos. But every Republican is going to get that. And when they got the Kavanaugh, it went absolutely crazy. What was so odd, then the Democrats come back after they're a bunch of, well, so we say moderately unpleasant jobs that are given against Judge nominee Jackson. And I said, this shows the depths to which the appointment process is done. The Republicans have gone to unparalleled lanes to obscure this stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, this is just a walk in the park compared to what had happened to Kavanaugh. Uh, But their attitude is that was right. And their attitude in this case is that she walks on water. I mean, my attitude throughout this entire hearing is uh, I generally take a view that uh, I'm moderately deferential. I don't think I speak out strongly on any Supreme Court nominee, uh, in part because I disagree with all of them in some level, as I think most people do. Uh, but I think you have to really think of something like Har- Harold Carswell before you want to go. I'm perfectly f- willing for people to vote against her if they think it's inappropriate. I'm not in favor of character assassination, which is what happens in some of these cases. And my view about McConnell was once he decided uh, that he was not going to confirm a a Democratic nominee by Obama. The correct thing is not to hold hearings, because otherwise you have to engage in character assassination to stop somebody. And I don't think anybody should be subject to those kinds of ordeals. Well, last thing on this, and then we'll move on. John, I'll start with you on this one. It, it's the nature of this show. We end up spending a lot more time on the, the ins and outs of the conservative justices thought than the liberal ones. And for the layperson. Uh, Justice Breyer has been a, a relatively invisible justice. He has not been Scalia or Ginsburg in terms of his cultural footprint. How should his tenure be remembered? Uh, what do you think of when you think of Justice Breyer? It's interesting. I think the reason the American public doesn't know him well is because he was 
next in seniority after Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who stayed on the court right. so long that Justice Breyer never got to be head of the liberal wing of the court. It was sort of like being the junior senator from South Carolina because Strom Thurmond was there for like 60 years or whatever it was. Well, she was one year ahead be. of him, right? Yeah, and, he, and she stayed a long time. So he never got to really be a leader on the court. So, but I thought his jurisprudence was interesting. And in fact, in many ways, I think his influence was stronger by the things he did outside the court than the things he did on the court. I actually can't think of any sort of prominent, outstanding Breyer uh, opinion. But he wrote a lot of books and law review articles. And in those books and articles, he was much more moderate than I think his voting pattern on the court, where he would never break ranks on any kind of serious progressive priority like abortion or affirmative action or federal power. But in his books and articles, he was part of what I think would you might describe as sort of the new Democrat approach to government, which was to try to actually join forces with some uh, conservatives to try to make government work more efficiently. Breyer was one of the leading uh, progressives or Democrats who was in favor of cost-benefit analysis in reviewing regulations and thought that uh, right, like if you're going to do environmental regulations, the you know, the life of the snail darter should not outweigh hundreds of millions of dollars of economic activity or That's industrial true. plans. So I thought he was, you know, someone who was much more moderate than his performance on the court, what his court reflected. Yeah, Richard, what do you, what do you, what well, do you- I mean, first of all, the snail daughter was a great case, but it was decided in 1983 or so uh, before he came on the court. I think the reason that I would give is that Ruth was a crusader. She is remembered for deciding the VMI case, having women go into the academies and so forth. Uh, she is on the vanguard of equal rights. Uh, she was the one who decided we were going to use the word gender instead of sex. Uh, and all of this stuff. And she was a crusader. He was always a balancer. And when you're a balancer, what you say is there's something on one side and there's something on the other side. And people who are going to be leaders of public movements have to be all on one side with respect to the issue that commands their control. And that's what Ruth Ginsburg was able to do um, on a wide range of issues having to do with women's rights. Um, As a technical lawyer, I've always taken issue with him on the following grounds, which is I think he's too much deferential under Chevron deference in the way in which things are done and has too much of a belief in the way in which the administrative state starts to work. In his case, by the way, I would say the second thing is I think he had too much deference to the administrative state, but I would be a lot less worried about it if he were the administrator to whom he gave deference for. Because I never thought that in terms of his day-to-day operation, uh, that Breyer had sort of very polarized instincts on anything. And remember, he was a very good copyright lawyer. He was a very good antitrust lawyer when he was um, coming around for the Supreme Court. So that uh, if you actually looked at his decisions or his behaviors on these issues, uh, they would be kind of in the mainstream. I I I will tell you one Breyer anecdote. Uh, 
I was there to give a talk to the Supreme Court Historical Society on the history of rate regulation. And Justice Thomas was supposed to introduce me. He could not show up. So Justice Breyer did the honors. And as we were walking over, all he could do is mumble, mumble, mumble about how bad the Supreme Court had mangled Iowa public utilities, which is a very complicated rate case in which he wrote the dissent, which I actually thought was correct. Um, and, and so what you do is you do see somebody whose kind of natural predilection is on areas having to do with, you know, these kinds of intellectual subjects, you're not going to storm the barricades with somebody who starts to say, when it comes to product description and a patent application, you have to follow the following rule on deference. And he tended to do most of his work on those kinds of issues. And Ruth tended to do those on hot button issues. And just think about it, right? You know, her dissent in Shelby County and so forth. Um, voting rights issues are hot. Abortion issues are hot. Uh, discrimination issues are hot. And that's where she she made her uh, her reputation. Uh, she was actually on some issues relatively conservative. For example, on copyrights, I think she was influenced by her very eminent daughter, Jane Ginsburg, who's a copyright professor, some real distinction sitting there at Columbia. Um, and on administrative law and jurisdictional issues, she was also somewhat conservative. But do you remember her being skeptical about long arm jurisdiction, John? Yeah, I'm sorry, <laughs> my, sorry, no, no, my, my, the, the hamster in my brain cage is going. So I actually, I thought, um, uh, I mean, we're the talking about prior, no. not RBG, but I think RBG actually, I thought was pretty good on civil procedure issues. I, I'm I saying she, she was, but that's yeah, not yeah, what she she's did. remembered for. No, she was a real stickler. And actually one thing she, that she did that Richard might like, I thought was good. I teach the class is that he, um, she, uh, really didn't like, the way states tried to be able to drag in companies from all over the world just That's because they might have sold question. a few tires. Yeah, sold a few tires in the state of California. Whereas I think, I actually think um, Justice Breyer, Richard's exactly right. He was a balancer. So he probably would have just asked, is it reasonable to bring this company in and get sued in California? Whereas Ruth Bader Ginsburg would say, how many times did those tires get here? And how did that company really intend to send them to California before should we let you know, California plaintiff's lawyers have at it a good year? Yeah, no, and she did that. And, and you know, look, long-arm jurisdiction is not an easy question. What's the degree of presence in a company? Uh, this issue in a slightly different form is arising right now in the Supreme Court with the pigs as to whether or not California can prevent pigs from coming into the, to the state. Um, well, pig meats, even if the, the meat is safe, if the conditions under which they were raised in another state did not meet the local um, satisfaction, that's a big extraterritorial issue. Uh, Ruth was fine. Justice Ginsburg was fine on all of those kinds of cases. I mean, uh, what keeps the Supreme Court together, remember, is the fact on many, many issues of vast importance that flow below the uh, basically the popular radar, the differences between the justices is less. And you get a lot of eight, one or nine, zero sorts of decisions. Uh, choosing a Supreme Court justice today depends on basically about four issues, campaign finance, abortions, affirmative action, right? Uh, the kinds of things that really start to attract the attention. Uh, bankruptcy priorities do not, even antitrust enforcement does not particularly raise that sort of question. Uh, so international Thank relations... God. 
What I mean, <laughs> well, it, it is the bulk of the Supreme Court business is ignored by the bulk of the American populace. And one of the things that, you know, I've not known many Justice Jackson's decisions. I haven't read them, but she wrote a particularly fine, somewhat long decision having to do with the NEPA application statute, where she kind of got it about right. Um, and I was sort of pleased to see that because there are many justices who get those things wrong. And certainly the Biden administration seems to mess this issue up all the time, most recently the other the day. So I, I think, in effect, you're buying a market basket of goods. What I caution myself and other people to do is to remember you're voting for people who are going to decide 80 cases a year, of which only two or three each year are going to get the command, the kind of attention that's going to galvanize the public either for or against you. So let's go to one of those rare judicial rulings that does engage the public, not from the Supreme Court, but we telegraphed this earlier, a federal judge in Florida um, of course, it had to be Florida to send every progressive in America screaming into a pillow, <laughs> struck down the mask mandate for travel. So in most places, you now don't have to wear masks on airplanes, on trains, et cetera. Here in New York, however, you still have to wear them on the on the train, for instance, although there are about 20 reasons in front of COVID to justify wearing a mask in a New York City subway. <laughs> but what's interesting about this is that there's been such a, a jubilee over the substance of this ruling. I haven't yet seen a particularly serious uh, legal analysis of it in the, in the mainstream press. The judge's argument here was that the CDC had overstepped because they, they went beyond their statutory authority. They sidestepped the notice and comment process, which I, I gather there are some exceptions to, but they didn't apply here and they acted as if it did. And they didn't adequately explain their decision. So, so Richard, can Richard, you explain can you for us, A, what you make of this ruling, but B, what kind of obligations an institution like the CDC is under if they want to enact a policy like this and do it lawfully? Well, I mean, this is actually very complicated, and I certainly don't want to say that I'm super aware of this, but I'm going to back off and say before there was an earlier decision in which the CDC said it had the authority in order to protect public health against various kinds of dangers having to do with contamination and infection and so forth uh, to impose a rent moratorium. That is, you couldn't expel people. And I thought that that was just simply on cloud cuckoo land. Now, this is a case in which you're trying to deal with sanitation, and there is no question that the use of a mask whether rightly or wrongly imposed, is much closer to the core function than it is otherwise. And I've heard learned critiques saying that textualism is not going to solve this particular problem because there's several equally plausible definitions of what we mean by a sanitation issue, some of which come one way and some of which cut the other way. And so the textualism doesn't solve it. I think, in effect, on that particular point, uh, the judge is probably more vulnerable. What has always bothered me beyond all belief in these cases is the notion that this emergency is perpetual, so therefore we do not have to have anything other than unilateral executive action. And so I think the way this thing should have done is on March 20th, you impose some kind of a mandate. Uh, you look around and you say, I'm not exactly sure how long this will go last. I'm not sure how sound the mandate is. I'm going to put together a congressional investigation or a state panel of some sort to look into this thing so that by three months from now, 
I can get some additional legitimacy. And that's not the way this works. It's people put these uh, mandates on, then they extend them, then they extend them again. You never see any coherent reasoning coming out. In many cases, contrary evidence is simply ignored. I think the CDC in the many ways is absolutely the worst offender on this. The same thing with respect to the governors. So I think she's on much stronger ground to say you haven't gone through this kind of procedure. There's something else that I will mention. This is my peculiar bugaboo, and I think John may well be on the other side. I've had the misfortune of actually trying to understand what's going on in these COVID cases from a scientific point of view, uh, because I've done a lot of work in medical ethics. And what's so striking about everything that seems to come down from the courts is people are only willing to talk about the administrative law issues that are involved in these cases. They're not willing to talk about, for example, the relationship between natural immunities on the one hand and the vaccine on the other. They're not prepared to see whether or not the use of HCQ hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin is a good or a bad thing in one way. So that everything we do is essentially based upon public administrative law. Nothing is based on the science. I come from an exactly opposite tradition, uh, having done huge numbers of tort cases, having to deal with everything from lead to DES, asbestos, and so forth, which is you always start with the science and try to figure out what's going on. Then you figure out what the intervening steps ought to be and so forth. So my objection is kind of universal. I think what's happened is we get these kinds of statements. We don't have any real understanding of what's going on. So nobody could figure out from the decision to either keep or to remove the mandate, whether we've done a good or a bad thing, because nothing is done with respect to the way in which the science starts to operate. And the answer is, we don't know the first thing about this, so we'd rather decide it on safe grounds, which means there's a huge public vacuum in knowledge about the actual decisions and why they're made. So this is, I think, part of the problem. Uh, most people said, look, it can't be the mask. I'll give you the simple argument. Uh, what happens is all of a sudden COVID starts to go up, people start wearing masks and it keeps going up and then it goes down and they're still wearing masks. So you're wearing masks when it goes up and you're wearing masks when it goes down. It turns out the mask is simply there. What's driving you is the fact that these viruses spread in a way that masks can't begin to cope with. And there are these natural cycles that dominate and the masks are, I think, largely a diversion. I don't think there is an important diversion of some other stuff. A mask is a silly idea, I think, in many cases, but a quarantine is ever so much more. And there was absolutely no serious legal action that was done when you shut down every medical facility in the United States, virtually, it seemed, uh, that wasn't COVID-related in the year, say, between the uh, beginning of 2020 in March and all the way into 2021. That's a huge loss, and we're seeing the deaths pile up now. That was also ignored. And the mass question is one-tenth, one-one-hundredth is important as the quarantine question, which never got a satisfactory review in any court, as far as I can tell. John, let's assume for a moment that most of the major public COVID interventions are, are behind us. It feels like it's going that way, although the administration is, uh, in my judgment, looking political gift horse in the mouth and appealing this now. But that aside, we've clearly turned a corner, at least in the severity of what it feels like the public sector is going to be willing to hand down and what the public is going to be willing to tolerate. So we're now more than two years removed from the start of the pandemic. Let's be generous and great on a curve. At the start of this thing, governments had to move quickly and with a lot of uncertainty to figure out what to do, even factoring that in. Looking back over the two years behind us, 
What would your top line judgment be about the the legal dimensions of the COVID response? How responsible were American policymakers in striking the right balance between trying to keep the public safe, but also not overstepping their authority? So I think for the most part, I think Richard might disagree with me, but I think for the most part, actually, our system responded properly in the in the sense of the right decision makers actually made the fundamental policy choices. Put aside our fighting about Trump or Biden, it was really the state governors who chose the lockdowns. And we had decentralized choices throughout the country. And I'm glad we did. So the problem is me and Richard happened to live in states like California, Illinois, New York, where the governors went way too far, I think. And we could hold them accountable. We had a recall of Governor Newsom during the pandemic. And for the most part, people in California seem to like living under masks and having their economy shut down and don't like sending their kids to school if the local county official says don't send them to school. And other states, Texas, uh, Florida, obviously, uh, went the other direction. They opened up faster. And I think that's the way our system really is designed, is to have a more decentralized response where it's up to state and local governments to decide how to take care of our public health. And I think uh, what the federal government did actually was also appropriate, right? They poured in money. Now, they went too far, I think, in the spending bills. They went too far in the, the welfare and aid programs. But it was the federal government's responsibility right, to give out expert opinion. No one was required to follow the masking uh, advice of the CDC, but the state governors did, um, to pour money, as President Trump and the Congress did, into vaccine research and to pay for the vaccines. I think that's one of the incredible stories, is to have a vaccine in less than a year that works with high effectiveness. I think that's one of the miracles out of all this, but that's, I think, a proper federal role to uh, limit travel across the inter, uh, international borders of the United States. I thought that was her. So I actually think that our system as a whole uh, responded the way it should have with the right decision makers uh, making the right choice, the, the fundamental choices. I think they overreacted in several of the states, but the voters of those states could have changed those leaders and they voted on the side of excessive lockdown and ex in, in some of our biggest states. That's unfortunate, and the voters can hold them responsible, and and did in some places. I mean, I don't think Andrew Cuomo is going to get, you know, is not going to be back on the ballot. Unfortunately, I think Newsom will probably win his reelection, even though I think he made some disastrous policy choices. He reflected the will of the voters in uh, California. And one last thing is, and the courts did eventually get involved. It took over a year. I think that's probably right. I think. Chief Justice Roberts was right in the early cases to say in the first few months of the emergency, what the courts really know to be able to review things. But I think towards the end of the emergency, as we've seen the last six, mm -hmm. seven months, the courts have gotten back involved. As Richard noted, they struck down the eviction moratorium. They struck down the nationwide vaccine mandate. Mm -hmm. By the way, these are all things state governments could do. It's just not the federal role. And now they're involved with the mask but let me ask just like this is how the American system does, should require us to respond is no one's stopping United Airlines from imposing a mask mandate. No one's stopping California 
for imposing a mask mandate. Troy, you're right. They're not doing it because people are sick and tired of it, and they think right. the trade-off isn't worth it. They have finally come around to Richard's view on masks, although I don't think most Americans are still going to shoot themselves up with horse drugs. Well, I mean, the last piece is a bit of defamation, but let me start <laughs> Not only that, only that. I tried to uh, film no, no, my no, stuff no, with John, defamation. I mean, you see, well, John, basically, this is a fundamental difference in orientation that I refer to. John sort of thinks of structural solutions without having to get to substantive issues. And the decentralization of federalization will work itself out. Um, I am basically think that there's always some gain from that arrangement. But I think that if you start looking at the substantive situations, things are much more troublesome. So let's start with the initial situations. There were these very extreme proposals announcing that there'd be arguably a million dead by July 15th, 2020, if we didn't take dramatic steps. And even then, we could only reduce it down to 20, you know, 500,000 deaths. These proposals were way off the mark. I was made many mistakes myself quite seriously. But what happens is, forget the projections, people make mistakes at the beginning. Everybody made mistakes at the beginning. But one of the things that happened from the mistakes is you get Governor Cuomo in New York and Governor Whitmer in uh, Michigan and so forth. And what they decide to do in order to free up beds in hospitals to take COVID positive patients, invoke the anti-discrimination laws, force them back into nursing homes, and perhaps kill 30 to 40 million thousand people, rather, uh, by having them unnecessarily exposed to the COVID situation. I mean, I think that that's just absolutely crazy in the way in which you'd want to work all of this stuff. I, I think what you do is you put these homes into an absolutely impossible position. They're potentially liable, can't plead the government coercion as defense. Then it turns out it gives the vaccine a second boost. So now, when rather not the vaccine, the virus. So when you go out, you get a second peak a little bit later. There are a lot of troubles on that. On the question of the medicines that you're talking about, um, ivermectin is certainly no used on horses with immense success, but it's also in human size used for treating 30 or 40 conditions. The same thing is true with HCQ. Uh, the key plus point about these things is there's no downside. The safety issues with respect to both of these drugs have been exhaustively examined, not only through FDA trials, but through billions upon billions of uses. And even for pregnant women, they do not pose any serious trouble. So the only question is the upside. And for, to ban something de facto or de jure, or to call it a horse medicine, I think prevents all sorts of experimentation. Um, I've seen studies that go both ways. I would say probably more find some positive effect on this. That is good stuff. But boy, somebody says, I don't want to take ivermectin or HCQ because I think they're potentially dangerous. I'm not going to tell them you have to do it. The vaccines were a miracle, but they're not vaccines. Uh, they are gene therapies because the mechanisms that are used are entirely different. And if you start looking at the statistics, I think they show pretty conclusively uh, that the first round of this stuff has relatively high effectiveness and relatively few side effects, but additional rounds, essentially, the benefits go down and the burdens go up. And if you start looking at some of the mortality risk tables, they're much higher now 
arguably attributable to the vaccines and otherwise. There are some very prominent uh, virologists and vaccine experts who come to exactly those conclusions. There are some very troublesome statistics about athletics dropping dead on the middle. Uh, there seem to be good reason to believe that the recent vaccines are highly associated with myocarditis, a heart condition that can kill you amongst young men, that they mess around with medical menstrual cycles for women, that they may bring about Guillain-Barre syndrome. What we do is we have some theoretical explanations as to why these things can happen. And then we also have some empirical data, which seems to point to very sharp upticks in these areas. So what is it that you want to do with that? Well, my view is the moment you start seeing trouble, uh, the CDC and the states have to start thinking what's going on. Uh, for some people, people in my age, I think on balance, it's probably wise uh, to take a booster if you have no counterindications, but not otherwise. I think for anybody under 60, if they ask me based upon what I know, I would follow the recommendations of those doctors and virologists and so forth to say, you're better off not doing it. Anybody who has a natural immunity should not be required to take any vaccine whatsoever. We know the max of that. And the CDC gets all of this wrong. And the FDA gets it all wrong. And the states seem to get it all wrong. So what's happening about this is there is now this huge battle in which you get establishment people and they're allowed to speak at will in favor of the received wisdom. And then you have places like Twitter would say we have a misinformation site. And what's misinformation? Anybody who disagrees with the WHO or with the CDC is misinformation. And you see hospitals firing people and doing something else. So I think we've gone way over on that topic. And I think what happens is I think people should have the option to decline the vaccines and to take the medicines. I don't think that anyone should force them to do either in, in these things. So I take a somewhat different view, and I think the responses have been less. I also think that the inability to understand the importance of asymptomatic transfer as a natural immunity device has led to a prolongation of this situation. I think the counts that have been given with respect to the number of dead are highly inflated for a bunch of technical reasons. So I don't think they did such a particular good job on this stuff. And I think part of it is because there's an orthodoxy which excludes rivals. It fires them. It denounces them. I mean, some of my good friends like Jay Bhattacharya are always essentially speaking under really difficult circumstances. Same thing with Scott Atlas and with Robert Malone. Uh, there's a woman recently named Stephanie Steniff who's written some very powerful stuff which says you better be very much aware of the way these vaccines work. And it turns out none of this is covered by mainstream magazines or news papers or the media. And to me, that's a public failure in discourse on the one hand and in governance on the other. Okay, there's a bunch of smaller stories here that I, I want to move you guys through quickly as we get to the back end here. Um, John, this first one made me think of you. There was a story in the New York Times the other day that suggested that one of the pushes that might emerge from the January 6th commission is an effort to overhaul the Insurrection Act, which is a law from 1807 that allows the president to deploy the military domestically to put down unrest. This hasn't been used since uh, Bush 41 during the L.A. riots. But the concern here is that it could have been put to ill use by Donald Trump. Some of the more extreme figures around him were pushing for him to invoke this during the controversy over the election. Trump himself had also threatened to use it during the riots, the George Floyd riots, which strikes this layman anyway as a, a case where it, its use could have been totally plausible. But this has been 
bubbling up on and off again for a while. It seems like the direction that most of the potential reformers want to go would be towards requiring the president consult with Congress before he did something like this. What, what's your reaction, John, to the idea of hemming in presidents on this front? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, this is another example of uh, Trump derangement syndrome persuading people, his critics, to throw out everything that Trump might have done or every power he might have used, whether good or ill. Uh, this is a law that was passed in the Jefferson administration, as you point out, 1807, to help respond potentially to the Aaron Burr treason right. effort right. Right, to, to, right, to detach Louisiana from the United States. Seems like a good idea. Uh, you also can mention this was one of the fundamental laws uh, that Abraham Lincoln was used right. in order to deal with secession. To right? And the, the basic idea of it is if there are conspiracies, if there are even states that are trying to stop the execution of federal law, I think that's sometimes a ground for calling out uh, the militia or the military, and the idea that you would, you know, that you would actually right, handicap the president's ability to act quickly in response uh, to an emergency seems like a very bad idea. Look, Trump didn't actually use a law. Yes, we're starting to see, you know, information come up from January 6th that there were a lot of crazy, some crazy people, you know, like Kraken Woman and, uh, you know, Michael Flynn, who are out there with these crazy ideas about invoking the Insurrection Act. But even Trump didn't use them, didn't, didn't adopt them. And think about what if Congress had to approve. <clears throat> so go back and look. One of the uses of it was President Eisenhower using it to enforce Brown versus Board of Education, right, back in the early 50s to desegregate the schools in the South, right? What would have happened if you needed Congress? A Congress at that time dominated, is particularly in the Senate, by segregationist Southern senators who are filibustering everything, right? They filibustered the Civil Rights Acts basically all the way till 1964, 1965. President Eisenhower wouldn't have been able to desegregate the South. So I think, again, people are not considering the, you know, the long-term consequences of handicapping the executive just because they're so deranged from their hatred of President Trump that they would permanently cripple the presidency. I think John is right. I also think that the definition of insurrection has to be carefully observed. Uh, Troy, you mentioned to this layman, you said that you thought that the uh, George Floyd situation in response might count as that. They certainly count as riots. I don't know whether they count as insurrection because there was no particular effort to overthrow the government of the United States. I feel the same way about the uh, Trump fiasco of January of this past year. I don't think the people who even went inside the Capitol building were insurrectionists. I think they were criminal trespassers. But the word has resonance because of its place in the 14th Amendment, where it allows Congress not to seat people who have been involved in the insurrection. They meant the Civil War. And I think it's a stretch to say January 6th and the Civil War cut from the same cloth. So again, I think that one has to be careful about the uses of this thing. But John is surely right. President, congressional consent in many ways is terrible. If you recall, when Maryland was in danger of becoming a Confederate state, our good friend Lincoln sent in 
the army and they shut this down and didn't give anybody the benefit of habeas corpus at the particular time. Uh, the Supreme Court through Justice Tawney said, you know, you can't do this. And everybody ignored him. And, you know, the issue is whether or not this is a genuine emergency. I think succession is certainly going to fit that. Um, and what happened is two things about Lincoln to note. One is he never used that power against his opposition in Congress. It was only in the case of succession. And he was able to secure ex post uh, approval of this and ratification uh, that took place afterwards. So putting all this stuff together, um, I think that there may be areas in which you want to change things. But if anything, the thing I'm more worried about now is the efforts chiefly on the Democratic side uh, to use the term um, insurrection to disqualify people from running for office. And that strikes me as being extremely dangerous. And God knows the the 9-11 or or the January 6th commission has its way. They may want to be pressing criminal charges against Trump, which I also think would be a very serious mistake under these circumstances. You know, it's not though I admire everything that he does, but I think when one administration uses criminal sanctions against its predecessor in offer, it's an invitation for having a real degeneration in in political succession, one of the most difficult and important features of any democratic system. Richard, you made a good point there. I sh- I should clarify with the Insurrection Act and the uh, the Floyd protests. I didn't mean to suggest that it meant it met the definition of insurrection. I meant to suggest that if it applied to the L.A. riots, it seemed like the George Floyd riots would be an analog to that. Yeah, and, and probably worse in many ways and in many areas. Look, I mean, what I thought went on in that case was a disgrace. I still think it was. I think most Americans actually do. This is a man who died of fentanyl poisoning. He had almost a four time over dose. Uh, you had the police calling twice in order to get emergency assistance. Uh, sitting on the back of a head is designed to open up the trachea, not to shut this thing down. And the last scene that you see is two policemen getting into the van with the emergency people, sort of talking what the vitals are, what they've done, and what has to be done next. This does not strike me as what happened. And I think when Harrelson and several other people denounced this as murder before they even had the evidence, it was even worse than the Michael Brown type situation. And the political denunciations of systematic racism in a town which is dominated by progressives, it seemed to me, just inflamed things further. And the high crime rate that we have now when police are reluctant to get into there have shown that that's an, you know, an, an episode in American life, which is now just about two years ago, uh, which we will come to regret. Uh, the sort of the wild and strong denunciation of the police force and of general governments in the United States. So uh, there there are real dangers to doing this. And I think of anything today, if you try to run on a platform which says, you know, we have to defund the police because we have situations like George Floyd, you're going to be run out of office. My guess is that the crime issue is going to favor strongly the Republican and those defendants, those Democrats that decide to switch sides on that particular issue. Indeed, I think crime and what's happening in the schools with respect to so-called woke education are probably going to be the two decisive features at the local election. Uh, Inflation is perhaps the third. I think it all bodes very ill for Biden under these circumstances, to which I can only say deservedly so. A few more issues to get you guys to. This one is an Epstein special. Uh, Well, there's this kind of surreal fight that's going on down in Florida where the the governor, Ron DeSantis, signed a bill actually just a few hours before we're recording this Mm -hmm. that removes 
the special treatment that Disney previously held under Florida law. Basically, Disney World and the infrastructure around it have been organized into this self-governing unit, which means Disney finances all of its own municipal services and everything else that's not imposed on other people in the county. And this is part of the backlash from Florida Republicans after Disney weighed in on that controversial piece of legislation that limited the kinds of conversations you could have in the classroom with young kids about sexuality. So, Richard, I'm curious to get your reaction to this. The press coverage about this is almost entirely centered on the culture war dimensions of the fight. But I'd like to hear the libertarians analysis, the the weird kind of corporate autonomy that existed here and what it would mean for it to go away. Yes. Look, I mean, this is a funny thing. I had one of my friends wrote me a letter the other day in which he said this looked to be like absolute rent-seeking favoritism and then wrote me today a different letter in which he says, you know, it turns out that uh, many of the activities that were done by Disney are being done more efficiently and have relieved local governments of a set of expenses that are very high. And so that if you're actually looking at these kinds of arrangements, they may be well pro-growth. And in general, to the extent that you can delegate uh, infrastructure issues to private parties, I think it's a good thing. One of the key elements that everybody understood about Orlando was that you wanted to make the place really big because you were worried if it was small like Disneyland was in California, all of the gains from the activity there would be gathered by neighbors who would build their hotels and restaurants just outside the borders. It still happens, by the way, uh, but it's much less so given Orlando. So I don't see this as a rent-seeking uh, game, at least presently. So then there are two questions. Is if you want to get rid of it, I think what you have to do is to make some sort of case that it's an abuse. And I'm always willing to listen to evidence on that. But I think it's just terrible policy when you find you try to use getting rid of an efficient social organization in order to make a political point against an enemy whom you've already been able to beat by passing the substantive legislation you want. I think that the Disney folks were first-class jerks when they started to come out. I think that the bill was often labeled, don't say you're gay, which had nothing to do with what the legislation's about. And so this is a case in which two wrongs don't make a right. Uh, my guess is that DeSantis will raise a lot of money on this, at least in the state of Texas. I think in the long run doing this will probably hurt him if people still remember it, which is a big if. Uh, Two years down the road, if he's running for president, where it will turn out, I think this will not play well outside of the state of Florida. But I think, in effect, this was a mistake to do the second thing. I think he was absolutely right to stick to his guns on the merits. I do not like linking issues together. And particularly when you start to treat something as obviously corrupt, when in fact it has been an enormous boom, as best we can tell for Florida for the past 50 years. So that the burden of explanation would lie on the governor. Nobody cared about the economics of this. This was cutting off your nose to spite your face. And why is it the Republicans have this rare gift to give some traction back to Democrats when they are right on all the substantive issues is a a mystery for another day. And, And that was my objection to Donald Trump. He could always snatch defeat out of victory. Um, by saying something stupid, even when he was right. And you know my favorite phrase, right, Troy? Trump a la carte. That's right. That's right. One issue at a time. One issue, because the man is such a loose cannon. And so that would be my response. And I assume on this one, even without asking that the wise Mr. You will agree with me entirely. Well, John, do you you want to weigh in on this one? Because I know you're raring to go on the next one I have. (laughs) My only point is... um, uh, Disney got what it wants, but I think Governor DeSantis and the legislature are going too far. Uh, I think, like 
like uh, the state, you know, Florida made a deal with Disney back whenever they got Disney promised them all kinds of benefits to get them to invest and to build this huge complex there. I don't think it's good for the long run for Florida itself to go back on its word and take away those benefits. Even though there's a sort of pleasure in making Disney pay for taking its woke positions, I worry that you know, this is going to undermine the credibility and stability of investing in Florida. I don't think it's in the best long-term interest to undermine what the, we lawyers call investment-backed expectations. expectations. <laughs> I, sh- I should note that some of the whispers in the political press that have been suggesting, I think this has like a two-year time horizon before it kicks in. And the, the theory is that, as you suggested, Richard, this is a huge fundraising bonanza for DeSantis and company now, and that they might find a way to climb down before it ever actually takes effect. Well, I certainly hope they do. I mean, a plague on both your houses is Shakespearean, both in its origin and its import. <laughs> Okay, so John, I know you're you're ready for this one. I want to turn you guys uh, to a case that was decided in the Supreme Court yesterday. These are the kinds of stories I live for. So the court handed down in an eight to one ruling the judgment that citizens of Puerto Rico are rightly excluded from SSI benefits. Big deal, right? Who cares? The, the territories are treated differently than the states on many of these programs. Well, the, the, only, the only dissent was from Sotomayor. What was so interesting here was the concurrence from Justice Gorsuch, who uh, raised a related issue, but one that was not actually being litigated here, which is, as Richard whispered there a moment ago, the territory standings under the insular cases, which are a series of Supreme Court decisions that came in the wake of the Spanish-American War when we were trying to figure out how the new territories would be treated. And the upshot was that the citizens of these territories did not necessarily get all of the protections of the Constitution. So, for instance, as Justice Gorsuch pointed out, a citizen of Puerto Rico doesn't have, at the moment, the right to trial by jury under the current Supreme Court precedent. And Gorsuch was blistering on this. He said, I'll read you the quote, the insular cases have no foundation in the Constitution and rest instead on racial stereotypes. They deserve no place in our law, close quote. So it's amazing to me that left-wing activists have not carried Neil Gorsuch out on their shoulders yet, because between this and the Native American issue in Oklahoma, he is decidedly the leading anti-colonialist Supreme Court justice. John, what do you make of Gorsuch's criticism here? I, I, I think he raises a lot of interesting questions, but I think that he reaches some conclusions without undertaking any analysis. So, the answer the case, I started out as a foreign relations scholar. This is one of the most interesting issues, fundamental constitutional issues, doesn't really get litigated very often, but it's this. When the United States grows, adds territory, and then eventually after the Spanish-American War, adds things which it never really intends to make states. Not just, I mean, Puerto Rico is just a leftover. What do you do about the Philippines, you know, which is a huge country with, you know, millions and millions of people? Does the Constitution follow the flag? For example, do you have to provide everybody in all the territories with jury trials? Do all those people get the protection of the Bill of Rights? So when we won the Spanish-American War in 1898, a bunch of scholars, government officials, and ultimately was blessed, this view was blessed in the insular cases, decided, no, in those territories, you don't have, the government does not have to provide the same protections of the Bill of Rights. The government does not have to create the same systems of government that exist back at home in the United States, in the territory, in the continental United States. Yeah, now, there's the been a way, lot I of mean, attacks on this. I'm sorry? Yeah, there's I, been a, the, 
it may be wrong, but I don't think this was racist. I mean, the claim was at the Spanish-American War, those period, that period afterwards, it was racist or colonialist. But that doesn't answer the original question, which is under the original understanding of the Constitution, would the founders have thought that conquered territory, right, territory that comes into here through war, that had to automatically be given right, the same system of government, the same constitutional rights that apply at home. Gorsuch claims that the original understanding does not support the answer cases he provides. I looked at the opinion pretty closely. I see no evidence that he provides that actually supports that. Instead, most of his opinion is an attack on those scholars and government officials who created the system after the Spanish-American War. I actually think that under, I, I, probably after careful study, I think it's not going to be so clear. I think it might very well be the case that the territories could be governed by different standards and different law then apply back in the states, and, and you know, yeah. the, and the states make up the United States. But I do, I do think it's something that the Supreme Court will have to settle sooner or later. Look, one of the issues about this was the question of transition. Uh, this was not a situation of saying that everybody who came in the territory had no rights whatsoever and could be uh, beaten up to a pulp by any federal official. The argument was that if you were a mature country, you had your own particular system and that continuing that system in place without the interposition of the American system was a perfectly respectable way in which to undertake business. And there's a lot to be said for that. We certainly do not want to impose American land law on a system which divides this title under some very other kind of state. And so I think before you do this, you have to kind of see this. I have not read, I guess it was Justice Taft who wrote the opinion. I haven't read this thing recently, but I certainly did not think of this as a series of cases which were designed to do something abusive. I thought it was a very difficult question of how it is you get continuity of governance. Now, in terms of McGirt, um, I think that will go down as Justice Gorsuch's worst opinion. Um, not only because of the way the text, he sort of disregarded settled expectations, but I gather there is now a very deep, profound set of institutional difficulties in terms of criminal prosecutions throughout the state of Oklahoma, uh, which happens when you decide to disregard uh, behaviors that have been done for a hundred years or so on the grounds that you think that the original treaty goes otherwise. So I take the position generally of what I call the prescriptive constitution, meaning there are things that we do for a very long time, which are actually contradictory of what happens on the original text, but they become embedded and settled. Oftentimes, they represent social improvements, and that you return to the original situation only with great degree of care to see that you don't create all sorts of dislocations in the process. And what's happened under McGirt in the state, I think, has, has met that. So before one wants to change anything in the insular cases, I think you have to have a very close and detailed study to see the ways in which local constitutional guarantees institute in, interact with federal situation. There are going to be a lot of statutes on this, a lot of case law on this. And so I'm not going to be blistering on that particular issue. I'm going to be a little bit more cautious on the way in which I proceed. I would want to see whether or not there are any particular instances of manifest injustice that happen to apply. And if those things happen to apply, then I want to figure out whether there are more limited ways to start to deal with them. But by and large, I think when it comes to settled expectations, unless you see some serious dislocation in the operation of the system as it is, you don't return it to something which may in fact be far more disruptive. 
So before I take you guys to the last question, can I give you my policy proposal for the territories? Yes. British Premier League rules. British soccer. We, we do relegation. <laughs> That's good. We do relegation. And oh. the, bottom, the bottom few, Delaware's got to go back to ter- territorial status for a few years. Maybe we send Minnesota to the Canadians for British Columbia and a province to be named later. Oh, <laughs> Just a thought. I mean, okay. on that note, I think we are basically getting fevered. I have, I have <laughs> one last question, which will not break the fever. But you'll like this, Richard. I will. This is an interesting story. This was, you may have seen this. This was written up in The New Yorker recently. So there's a, there's a lawsuit going on in Florida in, in their Orange County, the inferior oh. Orange County, where Orlando is, uh, in an attempt to stop some new residential development, which sounds like they're catching up to the other Orange County, um, around a lake. So far, no big deal, right? What makes this case distinctive, however is that the lake itself is one of the plaintiffs in this case. God bless us. And, and, and Richard, I turn to you for this. One learns from this piece in The New Yorker that there is a longstanding, if not pervasive, push to give legal personhood to natural objects. Now, there's a related trend we've talked about on the show a few times before where this has been attempted with animals. Yeah. But the argument here is that the, the rights of nature ought not to be defined entirely in terms of its utility to man. And the way around that is to give legal personhood to, in this case, Lake Mary Jane. Here's here's my first reaction. If you're going to allow a lake to be a plaintiff, you also have to allow a river to be a defendant. And there will be at least some (laughs) cases in which the lake will want to sue the river and the river will count the claim against the lake. And so we're having two entities that are suing. And behind it all are the basically the marionette holders. I think, in effect, all of these cases should be framed as situations where people who have an interest in the, in the lake uh, have a cognizable claim to its protection. So I think that these gimmicks have to be gotten rid of. And my dear friend Chris Stone was the one who first came up with this idea and whether or not trees had standing, uh, to which I remember the late Boris Bicker replying, Trees have standing as future timber and nothing more. Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, well, you know, so I, I, I think in effect we have it enough. I can't tell you, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but years ago I was interviewed by the New York Times for a story on an animal rights course we called that taught at Harvard by Stephen Wise, and I was skeptical about it. And two things happened. Uh, Within a matter of a day when the story came out, I was denounced in many circumstances. And I also became an instant authority on a topic which I had only thought about for 24 hours. Um, But I think think in the end, uh, the novelty wears off. Uh, To give you but another illustration of animals have rights. uh, And what you do is you're a fire company and you see there's a dog at one window and a child at the other window. And you look around and say, well, I rescued the dog. It's going to be a 50% chance of success. If I rescue the child, it's 49%. Let's go for the dog. Right. Right. Uh, People are not going to tolerate that. So this is fine as an abstract game. But the closer you start getting to real situation, uh, the more ominous that these proposals start to look. John, how frustrated slash surprised are you that this didn't get filed in Berkeley? (laughs) (laughs) If it's going to be lakes, there's a lot of other inanimate objects around berkeley i'd like to sue <laughs> but the only the, i gotta run but the only 
just a little footnote I would uh, list to Richard is that as I, I looked at the story and it's in state court, not federal court. And so standing is only a doctrine that limits federal no, court. I understand that, Sean. So God bless. I feel like if, you know, if these states want to be stupid and let the, you know, inanimate objects sue, well, let them ruin their court systems with it, right? Yes, I agree with that, John. On this notion, we <laughs> shall have a Pax Americana between us. There will be peace in our time as inanimate objects are relegated to a bench position in the legal system. All right, fellas. Great to be back with you. My thanks, as always, to you both, to our producer, Scott Emmergut, and to all of our wonderful listeners. Remember to do us a favor, rank the show on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for your patience with us. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. And well right. Okay. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org. I mean, with all my public work, I'm not an influencer. Oh, wait a minute. No, not really. You're almost the opposite.